set list in association with Seven Digital. This week, HMV, Spotify, and Terminators. Welcome to Setlist, the music business podcast from CMU. I'm Andy Malt. With me, just about, is Chris Cook. Hello, Chris. Just about because I've got a cold. Yeah. That's yeah. what you meant you, by that. You, you sound like you're on your last legs. Not that I'm fading away. You remember the photo at the end of Back to the Future where they sort of become... I don't think it's at the end. I think it's uh, throughout. It's a continuing motif. They become transparent in the photo. You're not yeah. suggesting I'm becoming... The end the, the, is where the photo comes back. That's and they true. know that they've saved the future. I don't think we need to talk about Back to the Future. The point you is, you said don't I'm just about here. Back to the Future trivia. And that could mean that I'm going transparent. It could mean that I arrived late. Yeah. Or it could mean I'm quite ill. Well, all of those things. I'm quite ill. I went to the Caucasus. Mm. I did Chris Cooks. And you got a Caucasus cold. Copyright towards the Caucasus. And I came back with a Caucasus cold. Mm. Although, having said that, since I got back, every single person I've met in London likewise has the same cold. So I think maybe I went to the Caucasus with the cold and then it sat lingering for a week when I was breathing in the healthy Caucasus air and it was only when I landed back in Gatwick that suddenly it came on in full force. Yeah, I went to the Caucasus. That is Azerbaijan, mm-hmm. Armenia mm-hmm. and Georgia. Okay. Over there, the British Council talking about music copyright and the music copyright business and then meeting the local music industry in each of those countries. I come back with a message for Spotify. Yeah. We're going to talk more about Spotify later. Yeah. Because we always do, don't we? (laughs) Hey, Spotify, if you're listening, they really want you to launch in uh, Armenia, Azerbaijan, and Georgia. They don't have Spotify yet. Do they not? Very much. You kind of think it's everywhere now, don't you? A YouTube SoundCloud market. These are in India. There was that whole thing about it was going to launch in India because someone saw something and then it didn't. Yet. Yeah. I mean, it will launch in India. Oh, yeah, but it was going to, like, everyone was like, oh, it's 31st of January, going to go live. Well, it was going to be a party, wasn't it? Yeah. The party got cancelled, no party, but not even a party scheduled in Azerbaijan, Georgia, or Armenia. They really want Spotify to launch there. But it was very interesting to go out there and to chat to all of those people, even though I did come back with a cold. I only really mentioned in that, A, because you introduced me in a weird way, but B... Well, we have to mention it because you sound like you're dying. Exactly. I've got a really weird voice, haven't I? My voice is quite a lot deeper than usual, I think. Yeah, it's not its usual tone. Doesn't help, but since I got back to this United Kingdom... For now. For now. I've... uh, Always worth noting. At one of the borders on my trip, as I was going from one of the countries to another, person on the passport bit... When she saw my passport, said, oh, you're from Britain. I love the British people. All of them. And it's like, really? (laughs) I I think you've uh, been misled. Anyway, what was I saying? Oh, yes, I've been doing a lot of talking this week because ever since I got back, I've been doing masterclasses and seminars every single day. Not today. So I get a day off from talking. Oh, except, look, podcast to be recorded. So here I am. So if you find my voice currently annoying, I apologize for that. But I'm ill. So there's nothing. Or I maybe can do about you it. normally find Chris's voice annoying, and this is better for you. In which case, I'll try to keep him ill for you. Yes, you can keep poisoning me. <laughs> Give me the opposite of the really? lemsip that I'm drinking at the moment. I sort of feel like I should have a late night radio show when my voice goes deeper like this. You know mm. how they have deeper voice DJs yeah. on late night radio? I think I could do that. But instead. <laughs> you could play this late at night. We've got to. Well, maybe some people probably do. But. We can't have a late night radio show because we've got to talk about the bloody music business and stuff. You could do that late at night. Could do that late at night. I mean, it doesn't have to be during the day. But it would have to be on a radio station to be a radio show, unless you're being really modern and suggesting that things like this count as radio shows. Yep. Which I don't. 
Mixcloud will probably disagree. Do we still put this podcast on Mixcloud? Mm-hmm. They would probably say it's a radio show because it's on Mixcloud. But to be a radio show, you've got to be on a radio station and show me the radio station in the world that would have this going out. Well, it would need <laughs> At some, all. It would need some work. <laughs> Let alone in a late night slot. So we're here to talk about the music business and stuff is the point. Six Music used to have a music business show. Did they? Yeah. Late night? No. No. That was where they went wrong. That's why they got cancelled. Sunday tea time, probably. Sort of Sunday tea time type thing, isn't it? Something like that. I can't remember. That's when I listened to Setlist. But anyway, we're here to talk about the music business and stuff. Yes. Although before... Oh, this uh, could be the stuff. Yes, this is very much the stuff. Before we get into talking about the music business and stuff, we should say a couple of quick thank yous to all the people who got in touch to Google properly and find out what the old Zavi now is on Oxford Street. This is audience interaction. This is like a radio show. Yeah. This could be on the radio. Last this time... Is we, this is the one we should definitely use to pitch for our, our radio show. Last time on Setlist, which was a couple of weeks ago, I think, we were talking about HMV. Mm, which we're going to do again. We're going to do again. But there have been developments. Yeah, and that's why. At that point, spoiler alert, not at this point, but at that point, it looked like Sports Direct might buy HMV UK, yeah. which made Andy Maltz say, hadn't the old HMV on Oxford Street already been turned into a Sports Direct? Yeah. I then said, are you getting it confused with the old Virgin Megastore, also on Oxford Street? You then tapped into Google, couldn't find anything out because it turns out you're useless on Google. Oh, I'm terrible. And we ended up that section of the show not really having any uh, information to share with anybody. But we can confirm that the old Virgin Megastore is not, and we're pretty sure, has never been a Sports Direct. No, well, uh, well, when you, Chris Cook, listener Chris Cook, sent in a photo of Primark. I happened to be on that corner of Oxford Street after a meeting last night. I didn't go out of my way, I should stress. By coincidence, <laughs> I happened to have a meeting around the corner, and I happened to be standing there, and it's like, oh, look, that's the old Virgin Megastore. I then started questioning myself. Is that the old Virgin Megastore? Mm. So I actually went in because I remembered the old Virgin oh, no, Megastore. No, it would be different. They wouldn't have records. Well, in there. no, but what I remembered that, that the old the Virgin rack. Megastore was kind of like an L shape. Right. And a bit came out on Tottenham Court Road. And it was like, so if it has the L shape and a bit that comes out on Tottenham Court Road, that's definitely the old Virgin right. Megastore, which it is. It's now Primark. I took a photo of it. I put it on my social feeds. A lot of people on my social feeds were very confused as to why I was posting that. <laughs> and they were like, but it's been a Primark for ages. And it's like, I know it's been a Primark for ages. This is all relating to the podcast. This proves you don't listen to my podcast. So that was good. I blocked all of those people. They're no longer connected with me on social media. I'm only interested in people enjoying my social feeds or whatever it is you do with social feeds. If they're also a podcast listener. Yeah. Anyway, before you did that, yeah, point, it turns out pointlessly, I, it was old news. Yeah, Andrew Robinson had already looked it up on Google Street View and identified that it was now Primark. But A, but A, but, you didn't tell me that. Well, so I didn't know that. Yeah. B, I was going to tell you on the podcast, but <laughs> Google Street View isn't updated every day of the week. It could have changed since the last time Google Street View sent a car down Oxford Street. Could have done. Anyway. Whereas my eyes saw it this week. Yes. And your social media post was not entirely redundant because then John Handelar replied and said that it used to be a footlocker before that. So it was very useful. Virgin Megastore. We learned a lot. Zavi, footlocker, Primark, never a sports direct. We're pretty certain that the old HMV became a sports direct, although... I wasn't so keen that I wandered up that bit of Oxford Street to check yesterday. 
You'll have to go back. Meanwhile, the old, old HMV that was also the new HMV, oh, now I've taken us into this week's news. So we're going to talk about that in a moment. But do you want to do the bit where you say what else we're going to talk about before we yeah, talk well, about the thing the, the, we've already started talking the about? The format of this is then you say, well, we're not here to talk about that. We kind of are here to talk about that. So, I mean, we are here to talk about that. But not, I mean, the Zavi we're not here to talk about. Nor Primark. But not we Primark. are here to but talk we, about not, but we have been. HMV and Sports Direct. But actually, we're going to talk about, yeah, we'll get to HMV in a second. After that, we're going to talk about uh, Spotify becoming briefly profitable and then buying a couple of podcast companies, and the new moves to make labels give back old artists their recording rights. All of that to come. But now... HMV. Big surprise. HMV! Uh, HMV has been saved. Hooray! So last time we spoke, which was a couple of weeks ago, because we kind of took a week off from a normal podcast, HMV... Well, you went on your tour, didn't you? I went on my copyright tour of the Caucasus and got my cold. HMV was still in administration... The administrators, KPMG, had revealed that they'd had a number of bids, although they hadn't told us who those were. Everybody knew that Mike Ashley of Sports Direct was among the bidders, and at that point, it seemed like he was probably going to be the favourite to buy HMV out of administration because he has done the same thing with another of other British retailers that have hit the wall in the last 12 months. And he's very excited about doing so. He had an interview in the Financial Times where he was saying, now is a great opportunity to buy up failing businesses on the high street and turn them around. But but he didn't buy this one. He did not succeed in the bidding. There was also rumour that there might be attempts at HMV of a management buyout by the sort of directors who were in charge of it under the ownership of its previous owners, Hilco. But in the end, hey... A record shop bought HMV. Yeah, KPMG saw a pattern emerge and went, well, you can't deny a pattern. We have to turn away all other bidders and take Sunrise Records from Canada because Sunrise Records in Canada, it's a little, well then, a little independent chain, bought 70 of the HMV Canada stores, turned them into Sunrise Records stores. It bought those from Hilco which bought the Canadian HMV business the last time that went under. And then, obviously, after making HMV Canada a success, Hilco stepped in and bought HMV UK. And then, yeah, so a few years later, HMV Canada goes under again. Sunrise comes in. A few years later, HMV UK goes down. Sunrise comes in again. It's a pattern. The pattern being that HMV Canada is two years ahead of HMV UK. Yeah. And whatever is the solution to keep HMV Canada in business in some form has to apply to the UK as well. Except you did say that this company, Sunrise Records, which I think had something like eight stores in Canada prior to it then buying the 70 HMV stores. But it bought those HMV stores when HMV Canada went to administration a couple of years ago, but rebranded them. So HMV Canada doesn't exist anymore. Sunrise Records now just exists all over Canada. But the deal that was done last week where Sunrise Records bought HMV UK, doesn't mean that we're going to lose HMV in the UK and Sunrise Records is suddenly going to appear on our high street. No, because I think that Sunrise Records is a, is a known brand in Canada and it made sense, like the company wanted to expand and it made sense to just rebrand everything. Whereas no one's heard of Sunrise Records over here. It would be like when Sam Goody tried to launch in the UK. It's not a brand people know. Didn't work. So yeah, they're going to keep it HMV. Well, most of them, they're shutting some of them. A hundred stores are going to be saved. That includes some of the FOP stores that HMV still owns. 27 are going to close down because their rents are just too high to keep them open. It does not make sense to have those shops. They're too expensive. That includes 
Going back to what we were talking about earlier, the Oxford Street flagship store. Yeah, back to Oxford Street. So after Hilco bought HMV out of administration back in 2013, they also downsized the network. They didn't keep them all open back in 2013. And then actually over the years when Hilco were in charge, quite regularly, they were shutting stores down, but also opening stores and moving stores around, basically looking for the cheapest possible rents. Some of their stores were much bigger than they needed. And so what Hilco did on Oxford Street was they shut down the old big store, which is the one that is now Sports Direct, we we think. think. (laughs) Definitely not Primark. And they shifted HMV's Oxford Street presence to the old, old HMV. And it was quite clever at the time, wasn't it? They managed to spin a negative as a positive. Yes. Because they shut down the big store on Oxford Street, opened up a smaller store on Oxford Street. But because it was the original address of the very first HMV store, they spun it as something like a homecoming. HMV is coming back home. Yeah, most people went with that and didn't seem to notice that it was just a dramatic downsizing. But then two years ago, actually, when Hilco was still running HMV and still saying HMV was going well, there were rumours that given that they did quite frequently move their stores around in order to save money on things like rent and business rates, there was rumour that the next one they were going to do that with was the Oxford Street branch, that they were going to move to somewhere else in London off the main shopping street in order to save money. In the end, that didn't happen, but it is happening now. So actually, most of the London stores, not that there were actually that many left, but there won't really be any HMV presence in central London, as I understand it, Mm. as HMV comes out of administration and Sunrise takes on those hundred stores around the country. But I think one of the reasons that that store was kept on, even though clearly it's an expensive store to have, is a bit of nostalgia. Because obviously it was the original store that opened in 1921, apart from a couple of years when they moved to Bond Street because of a fire in that store, hmv has been on Ox Street, it's been in another unit for a while and moved back, but it's been there for nearly 100 years. It'd be nice to do something around that shop for the centenary. And then some Canadian guy who's got no nostalgic connection to this shop at all has just come in and gone, shut it down, don't work. So that's Doug Putman that you're putting down there. Uh, uh, no. Who is the... I don't know if I was putting him down. It's just my my natural tone of voice makes it sound like I'm putting people down. The owner of Sunrise Records in Canada. And actually, it has to be said that, although obviously it is very sad that those stores are shutting down, mainly for the people who work there, there was also some job losses, I think, in one of their warehouses. Yes, 122. Quite a few redundancies as part of this. But all of that said, I think 100 shops staying in business is a better outcome than most people were expecting. Yeah, not three quarters of jobs saved as well. Yeah, when Hilco announced that the company was going back into administration over the Christmas break, I think the record industry was bracing itself for a much more significant downsizing of that with whatever the outcome of the administration was. Also, Sunrise Records is first and foremost a music-focused retailer. Yes. And this Doug Putman seems to be quite passionate about selling music in particular, also vinyl as well as CD. And so actually, although it's not ideal, I think for a lot of people in the record industry, obviously, it means we've seen whether or not it works, but it seems like the best possible outcome. And most people seem to be quite happy that this company, Sunrise, has got it rather than Sports Direct or possibly some sort of private equity outfit that could have been the outcome. Yeah, and I think, I mean, Sunrise, obviously, Sunrise expanded massively with its purchase of HMV Canada, and they've really talked up the kind of success of that deal and and, and expanding Sunrise out to this national brand with 70-odd, well, nearly 80 stores. And when the the deal was announced, Doug Pumpen went out and did kind of the media and talked about his big new idea for HMV, which it had to be said sounded quite a lot like Hilco's big new plan for HMV 
in 2013. Yes, I suppose that was, oh, the HMV pre-2013, lost track, diversified too much, didn't focus on the core product. We're going to focus on selling the CDs, selling the vinyl, being a really authentic music store, getting the in-stores back up and running, and then keeping our costs to the absolute minimum so we can keep things going. That's what Hilco said, and to be fair, more or less did five years ago. And yeah, Doug Putman was saying some quite similar stuff in terms of what he is aspiring to do. That said, that you could say the same thing about HMV Canada. Hilco's plan in 2011 when they took over HMV Canada, and Sunrise's plan in 2017, similar. But Sunrise seems to have done pretty well. They focused even more than HMV has on the vinyl revival and trying to get people into the shop buying vinyl. Apparently they've done pretty well doing that. Like I think they sold like half a million LPs last year in 12-inch format. And uh, they have a, a broader range of music than HMV traditionally does. So they position themselves more as a kind of serious music fans shop as well as, well, they've still got to get in the people who are just passing by on the high street. So they do also have the t-shirts and the gifty bits and board games and things. I mean, it doesn't sound like a radical change, but they reckon it's going to be successful. And I suppose the point is that while the plan does seem quite similar to Hilco's plan, Sunrise Records does seem to have had some success with stores in Canada that Hilco had otherwise given up on. Yep. So I suppose if they can do that in Canada, maybe they can do it in the UK. They can take stores that Hilco have said, we can't make these work anymore, shift things around a little bit, and then get a few more years trading and I say, from a music industry's perspective, while they will still be selling some of that other stuff, they'll also still be selling DVDs. They didn't really talk about the, the video game side, which at one point was a big part of HMV's business. But I suppose my point is, it does feel like Sunrise has been very much positioned since its expansion in Canada as first and foremost a record shop yeah. that sells some other stuff. Whereas I suppose HMV over the last 20 years has been very much, we're home entertainment, we are just as much in DVDs and games as we are in music. So from a music perspective, in some ways, that's quite exciting. All of that said, I suppose, going back to what we talked about on our HMV special last year, and last time we were talking about the HMV administration on the main set list, we are still talking about managed decline. It is true that the UK music industry continues to sell decent numbers of CDs every year, add the vinyl revival on top of that. It is still bringing in decent money, but it's not that some point next year, suddenly physical's going to go up again. <laughs> no. it, it is a declining side of the business. And so it is that question, isn't it, of how long can you continue to squeeze enough money out of physical to make this viable for everybody? And I think it might be true that I mean, Hilco ultimately is a very corporate entity. So it probably isn't surprising that Hilco would give up on the squeezing money out and trying to extend this as long as possible than a company like Sunrise would. But I suppose the jury is out on, even if they do achieve what they want to achieve, even if they do replicate some of the success they've had in Canada over here, even if we do now have a few more years of these being semi-successful businesses, bringing in enough money for the owners and some decent revenue for the record industry, it is going to continue to decline. So how long have we got? What is the long-term future of Sunrise's business here in the UK? Well, I did say the centenary is coming up, 2021. 100 is a nice round number. I say shut it down for its 100th birthday. <laughs> have a big party yeah. and then say, well, that's it. We're not going to do it anymore. I'm not sure Sunrise would necessarily get their return on their investment if they were to call it a day quite that soon. But Depends how much the vinyl revival revives. We will see. Could be a big spike. I guess. But I suppose, in the short term, a happy ending to the latest chapter 
in the long HMV story in that we will still have 100 HMV stores or well, technically four of those or FOP stores. So that's actually, there's still going to be a FOP in central London, isn't there? Because there's mm. that one down at Covent Garden Way. We will still have those stores on the high street and therefore you will still be able to buy CDs and a bit of vinyl and some other nonsense from a high street chain on the high street in a multitude of towns and cities around the UK in addition to all of the independent record shops that are still there. Well, maybe by becoming a pure record shop again. It will be like the uh, the Waterstones of records. Waterstones is doing all right now, isn't it? That just sells books. Yeah, but now you're raising a whole other debate right at the end of this section because books are different to CDs, aren't they? Are they? Bookshops still seem relevant because... books. Well, no, because <laughs> even if you have people who are fully Kindled or maybe even audio booking and you give them a book as a present or they buy a book because it's on special offer, they can still read the book. Mm. Whereas the issue with selling compact discs is we're getting to a point where there are actually quite a lot of people who don't have a CD player. Oh, they don't even yeah. have a CD player in their laptop or in their computer. So it's getting to the point where there's an increasing portion of the population who actually cannot play a CD. Okay, the vinyl revival, there may be more people who can play vinyl, but still it's, it's a niche thing, isn't it? So I think bookshops are different to record shops. Also, I spend a lot of money on children's books in Waterstones. And, not and you try giving a CD to a small child, which sometimes people do. Do they? Does, doesn't really work. <laughs> So I'm not sure that uh, that analogy works. But hey, we've kind of gone all pessimistic in the latter part of this by saying it's doomed, it'll go out of business. I'm super optimistic. I'm excited about going to HMV again. At least it's still here. Yeah. So there's your little positive spin for the end of this section. Still to come, new termination rights lawsuits. But now Spotify published its financial results for the last three months of 2018 last week and hey guess what spotify's making a profit now what do you think about that what do i think about that yeah is that what you want to know yeah spotify's profitable now making a profit streaming businesses come of age it is true that in the final quarter of 2018 which is what the latest spotify financial report was about spotify's balance sheet had some positive numbers at the bottom bad news for fans of numbers in brackets because the Spotify balance sheet puts negatives in brackets. And usually, when you look at the Spotify balance sheet, lots of big positive numbers at the top, and then a bunch of costs down the bottom, and then loads of numbers in brackets at the bottom. But for quarter four, in that quarter, it's well, there's different sorts of profit, aren't there? there? Yes. Operating profit, net profit, cash flow, something or other. Because accountants can't make things simple. But it had a good quarter, I think is the point. And it's one of the reasons why, because obviously now Spotify is a publicly listed company on the New York Stock Exchange, they have to put out these quarterly reports where they update us on their, how many subscribers they've got and how much money they've made. And we're not intending on dedicating 10 to 15 minutes of set list four times a year just to Spotify's God, no. quarterly reports. Because if we start doing that, then it's like, well, why aren't we doing the same to Universal's quarterly reports and Sony's quarterly reports and Live Nation's quarterly reports? And usually these quarterly reports are full of very big numbers that nobody really understands and are a bit boring. And they're spun in different ways depending on which type of profit you've got. But there were various things of interest about the latest Spotify quarter report, and that was one of them, that they were showing an operating and net profit for the quarter. Or in the words of Spotify itself, right at the top of its shareholders report, the first line, for the first time in the company's history, operating income, net income and free cash flow were all positive they said to their shareholders. So that is a good development in a notoriously loss-making business. Mm. All the streaming services usually lose money. But 
Spotify then started talking about its projections for the year ahead. Yeah, because that's the problem with having to put out public reports is you've got to be realistic about the future. And they weren't just saying, yeah, we're profitable now, billions of pounds of profit coming just round the corner. They explained various reasons why they did have that profitable quarter at the end of last year, which also links to the fact that they spent a bit less money than they usually would for various reasons. But they then said, looking ahead to the year coming up, that they're not expecting to be a super duper overall profitable business by the end of 2019. Yeah, so their gross profit margin will shrink over the year and they will close out 2019 with a loss. So everything back to normal. Everyone can relax now. Stop getting jittery at the thought of streaming services making money. It's it's not going to continue. Yeah, we don't want that. Streaming services that are profitable. But it wasn't just Spotify having a profitable kind of quarter at the end of 2019 that made this financial report interesting. There was a couple of other things. They updated us on their user stats, which they now do each time these reports come out. And in terms of premium users, well, they're continuing to add premium users at a pretty damn decent rate. Yeah, they had 96 million paying subscribers at the end of last year, which was up from 87 million at the end of the previous quarter. And then there's 207 million monthly active users. So you can do your own maths on how many free users there therefore are. I mean, it's coming closer and closer to 50-50, which is sort of in line with some research that the Entertainment Retailers Association put out last week as well, saying that later this year, the number of paying users on streaming services will overtake the number of free users. Although that research was UK, I guess, where obviously the Spotify figures are global. But I suppose it's important for Spotify and for Spotify shareholders. Hey, that's us. Yeah, Still a Spotify share. We've stopped looking what the value of Spotify share is. It keeps going down. We've given up on ever buying a dinner on the profit from our single Spotify share. But Spotify's business is still very much selling premium subscriptions with a little bit of advertising on top. Streaming is still a scale game. Streaming only really starts making sense once you reach a certain number of paying users. We still don't really know what that number is because, of course, different subscribers around the world have different value. Some people in the record industry are getting very obsessed that the average subscription price across the board is coming down because we're seeing significant growth in certain emerging markets. People are still very much honing in on Latin America at the moment, where we're seeing some significant growth in paid-for streaming, but obviously you pay less to stream in some of those markets. You're not paying the equivalent of £10, €10, $10 a month. So across the world, the average subscriber price is coming down, which therefore means this sort of magical number of subscribers you need in order for a company like Spotify to be profitable long-term is going up. So we still don't know how many subscribers they need, But I suppose the narrative you need to show to your shareholders is, look, we keep growing, we keep expanding, millions more people are signing up every month. We are a long way off peaking. So yes, we do have a future somewhere in all of this. And Spotify has big plans for its future too. It announced last week a couple of acquisitions as well. Which also made the announcement interesting. Yes, because it's the first time Spotify has acquired a content creation company. But for those of you who are desperate for Spotify to become a record company and thinking that maybe this is Spotify becoming a record company. Screw music! Yes, all the big news in this financial announcement was about Spotify's continued evolution of its podcast offering. Yes, so Spotify acquired a podcast maker, Gimlet Media, and a creation and distribution platform called Anchor, which Spotify CEO Daniel Ek said in a blog post on the company's website, Uh, was a part of a new plan to make Spotify 
the world's number one audio platform. Yeah, interesting new use of uh, words there. Obviously, Spotify has been pushing into podcasts for quite some time, particularly the last year. They've been pushing the podcast to the fore and having some success of late in terms of becoming a place that people go to for podcasts. Yeah. Obviously, there's a plethora of apps you can use for podcasts. Many of those apps have many of the same podcasts available because just like our podcast, we just push it out everywhere. Apple, obviously, because originally podcasting was all around sort of the iTunes infrastructure, Apple still do have the edge when it comes to people accessing podcasts. By a long way. But Spotify are slowly catching up. And obviously, they've been setting up their own podcasts in the last year, pushing it more to the fore. And so this is clearly quite a big statement of intent that podcasts are very much part of the Spotify business moving forward. One stat, which I think was another Daniel Eck quote, was that maybe they'll get to the point where 20% of all listening on Spotify could be spoken word rather than music content. Which is interesting. I mean, there's a number of reasons why Spotify would be interested in building up its spoken word content. I mean, one, it's cheaper than music. But also, it's a different type of listening. Daniel Eck really talked up radio. He was talking about how video is a much more profitable and lucrative business than audio. But people still listen on average to two hours of radio a day. And he reckoned there's a market out there that's not being tapped. Spotify could fill that hole. And so it's about getting more of your attention in different ways. And as you say, commercially speaking, generally that podcast content is costing them less money. At the moment, it's costing, in many cases, no money because a lot of podcasters aren't seeing anything. But even if they start paying the podcasters, it's generally not going to be as expensive as music. But you're right. He was also bigging up the fact that they see commercial potential. He then wasn't particularly precise about what that meant, but that they felt there was a huge commercial opportunity in audio in general, spoken word, which perhaps neither the radio industry nor the sort of ever-evolving podcast industry has yet properly capitalised on and maybe Spotify is the company to do that. He also talked about, because I suppose by expanding the podcast side, there is an element, as I said, most podcasts are available on multiple apps and platforms. Many podcasts are available on them all. Okay, Spotify might have some exclusive podcast content, and it's probably easier to have exclusive content in the podcast domain than it is in the music domain, because artists don't really want to lock their albums to one service. Obviously, a few artists did when Apple and Tidal were experimenting with that. But generally, everyone agreed it was silly having an album locked to one service, whereas you could have a podcast locked to one service. And indeed, obviously, Spotify commissioned some of their own podcasts, which are unique to Spotify. But he also talked up how they're going to do curation and all of that sort of stuff, the things they do on the music side to make listening to podcasts in Spotify more fulfilling for the listeners, even if the podcast you're listening to, you could equally listen to on Apple or SoundCloud or any of the other podcast apps that are out there. And so, well, there's a couple of things then that are interesting about the acquisitions. I mean, one, so Anchor is an interesting company because it sort of, it positions itself as a tool for allowing like anyone to record a podcast and upload it and start making money off it. So it has tools where you can record on your phone. It kind of says, you know, you don't need editing experience. It just lets you move bits of audio you've recorded around on your phone and you know, drag and drop and then upload your file and it sorts it all out for you. And then they'll start putting advertising on it for you and you can start raking in the millions as you and possibly one of your friends listens to your show. But that's interesting. We talked about like curation and discovery and monetization of podcasts. And so that's an interesting thing. that They've bought a platform that aims to help people monetize their podcasts. So it's conceivable that they could set things up that if you distribute your podcast 
through Anchor to Spotify. It could go out to free people with advertising and premium people without advertising, but you still get paid for it. That's a possible thing that could happen, I guess, although then that complicates things with the current licensing agreements that they have for music. Although many of those agreements are coming up for renewal in the next 12 months, labels won't want to be sharing that money, but maybe that could be part of that conversation. It kind of comes back to something we were talking about on a recent set list when actually we were talking about Pitchfork's potential paywall that's coming up. And then we talked about would people pay to access podcasts? And I said, if Spotify charged you an extra pound, but it got to access some exclusive podcasts or better curated podcasts, would you do that? Yeah. And you were saying maybe I would. So it might be, yeah, that what we're going to see in terms of podcasts on Spotify in the next 12 months, given that podcasts have been in there for quite some time, our podcast has been in there for quite some time, is more the commercialization of the podcast content, whether that is by sharing ad income or by monetizing in some way. And it would be interesting. I mean, I'm just thinking of this on the fly. I'm not suggesting that they will do this. But maybe if they did offer like a £1 a month podcast premium that then got you access to some exclusive podcast or something, that would be interesting in two ways. First of all, it might placate the labels who won't want to be sharing too much of the current pot Mm. with podcast owners because it will mean that the record companies will overall see less. But it also might be a sneaky way there's been much discussion about the fact that Spotify has never put its prices up. It did an experiment on increasing prices in Norway, I think. Yeah. But in most countries, it's been the same price point for what, 10 years now, whereas Netflix have put their prices up twice in that time. And maybe it would be a way of sneaking up the prices. I don't know. But I suppose on that side, it will be interesting to see what they do. The other podcast company they acquired, Gimlet's a podcast maker. Yes. So that's interesting. I mean, there's one bit of that that's interesting that I think that hasn't actually been honed in on as much as probably should have been. So Gimlet's a company that was founded in 2014 by uh, Alex Bloomberg, who was a former producer on This American Life. He also started the Planet Money podcast. I mean, those are, if you know about podcasting, and why would you not? You're listening to this one. Those are big podcasts in the US. And he uh, went off and set up this company as a kind of, you know, they create their own shows and then they sell advertising across all the shows and that makes money. They've got a lot of quite popular shows. They've got Reply All, which is one of my favorite shows been listening to them since before of the tldr who remembers tldr steward nostalgic podcast section the show i have no idea what you're talking about <laughs> but carry anyway, on they got reply all they got startup was their first podcast which was a podcast about starting up gimlet media which became, became a big hit and then became an unsuccessful tv sitcom i know this because in one of my recent journeys i think it was american airlines on board entertainment system had this sitcom called Alex Inc., which had Zach Braff in it. And it was basically a dramatization of that podcast. Right. And the whole gist of the story was, will this guy be able to make a success, giving up a radio career out of his podcast business, which is based on this guy, what's his name, Alex? Alex Blumberg. Based on his story, except whereas his story is a huge success, leading to this very lucrative Spotify acquisition. I think the sitcom died and it got canned after one series. It doesn't sound like the best way to transfer that to TV, does it? I actually quite enjoyed the four episodes I watched. Just four episodes? On my flight to uh, Miami, I think. But it's interesting you mentioned that, but it's not the only one of their shows that have been transferred to TV. They put out various shows that are kind of short series, as well as the kind of ongoing, never-ending shows like this one. Uh, not that this is a Gimlet show, but, you know, it goes on forever and never stops. Um, they put out various things that, that are kind of contained series. They had a, show, a radio drama called Homecoming, which became a show for Amazon starring Julia Roberts, which I think might have been a bit more of a success. Than the Zach Braff sitcom. Alex, Alex Inc. It's, not, it's a terrible name as well. Anyway, 
But so they're moving into TV. But also they launched a, I think in 2017, a branded content section of the company where they work with brands on making either kind of shows that then the brand can own and advertise around or a show that in some way is about that company or something at that company. And I think that is possibly the particularly interesting thing in terms of the Spotify acquisition, because Spotify obviously wants to move more into, well, it wants to boost its advertising revenues. They've said that, they want to boost their advertising. But how do you do that beyond just selling more ads to stick in between tracks? Um, lots of people have tried to do branded content and putting brands on playlists and things like that with not necessarily so much success. And part of the trouble with that is if you have branded playlists, or if you're using music, you kind of need the involvement of labels and musicians. Yeah, whenever you are creating brand-owned playlists or programs or whatever that has lots of music in it, it becomes very complicated very quickly because you almost certainly won't be able to do that under your existing licenses. I think with the curated playlist where you stick a brand on it, it's a little bit of a grey area. But certainly if you're creating content with artists and then you're sticking brands on it, well, you'll need the artist's permission, which means you'll need management permission. And then if you're using their songs, you'll need permission from their publisher and from their collecting society. The label will also probably want to cut. If it's a live thing, the agent might want to cut, the promoter might want to cut. And very quickly, all the money the brand's got has been spent on keeping the music industry happy. Whereas if you can come up with great spoken word concepts, where the only people you have to pay are the voices who present and possibly any guests, then that's a much easier way to grow that part. And you're right, when they listed on New York Stock Exchange last year, they talked about how they still thought that the advertising side of their business, which has always been a small part of the income overall, there was still room for growth in that. Branded content seems like an obvious way to go. And it may be that by getting this team in-house, that's a way to escalate that. So we'll see. I mean, obviously, as you said, Daniel Eck wrote this lengthy blog post announcing this in which he didn't actually say that much, if anything, about what they're going to do. Um, so we'll see if any of our ideas come to fruition. And I mean, if they do, I will send an invoice over. Or turn this conversation into a disastrous American sitcom. I'd take either. Before we get to our last story this week, shall we do some plugging? I have one thing to plug. Well, then plug that. Because the Urban Development Industry Takeover seminar that we have been partners with as CMU DIY for a few years now, and we do the monthly seminars in London. There's a whole new series of those monthly seminars coming up very soon. But that's not what I'm here to talk about today. There's also the Industry Takeover Aldea, which is where Urban Development takes over a venue in London for a full day. I say in London. One in Bristol last year, which they did in partnership with Multitrack over in Bristol. But this is a London all day. That's happening at King's Place in London on the 23rd of February. Fancy. From 11am through to 6pm. And basically there are loads of conversations and interviews and panels. And then there's lots of like one-on-one little surgery things where you can sit down with industry people and A&R people. And pretty much anyone you need to meet from Urban Music will be there. But also across the wider music industry, I'll be hosting a couple of things. I'll also be taking part in a panel. So I'll be doing some stuff, but that's not the important bit. There'll be loads and loads of speakers and talks and opportunities to meet and network with the music industry across the day. So as I say, all happening on Saturday, the 23rd of February at King's Place in London. So if you are in any way interested in getting into the music industry, whether you are an aspiring artist or you want to work in the business and you're looking for lots of contacts and ideas and insights, 
then why not come along? I will see you there. We'll provide a link in the notes to the website where you can go and buy your tickets. And I might even have a discount code. And if I remember to give that to Andy, and then he remembers to put it in the notes. So there are two ifs there. These are big ifs. But assuming that both of those things happen, there'll even be a discount code. So if you or anyone you know could benefit from that, then you can come along, buy your ticket and get your ticket slightly cheaper. So go to setlistpodcast.com, find the notes for this episode of the show, and then hopefully there'll be, uh, yeah, discount code and link in there for you. And finally this week, our promised Terminators, right at the top of this show, and Terminators you will get. You know Termination rights? There's going to be some lawsuits. That's as exciting as I made it sound, isn't it? You're not doing a very good job of selling this story. For all the chatter there has been this week, in the last seven days, in the music industry, here in the UK about all the latest HMV developments, about Spotify having a profitable quarter and moving full on into podcasting. Lots of chatter about all of that. But actually, these two lawsuits that were filed in New York last week have the potential to be quite explosive and quite significant. And uh, yeah, it's all to do with the termination right under American copyright law, which we have talked about before on set lists. We have. But let me just give you the very quick recap. Under American copyright law, we have this thing called termination rights. And so the idea is that if you create something, so you're the author of a song, because copyright law sometimes calls songwriters authors just to confuse everybody. So if you're the author, the creator of a song, and then you assign those rights to another entity, So let's say you're a songwriter and you do a publishing deal. And under that publishing deal, you assign your rights. And let's say that publishing deal means you assign your rights for life of copyright. So the publisher will own the copyright for as long as that copyright exists, which in America will be your lifetime and another 70 years. I should add, if any aspiring American songwriters are listening, do not do that deal. (laughs) Life of copyright deals are no longer the norm in the, the UK and the US, although they used to be back in the day. But crucially, If you do assign your rights to another party, even if you were to do a terrible life of copyright deal, under American copyright law, after 35 years, you have a one-chance opportunity to basically cancel that contract and get the rights back. And so it's sometimes called a termination right, sometimes called a reversion right. So after 35 years, after the contract's been done, the songs have been written and published, you have one opportunity to get your rights back. You have to file some paperwork, have to go through a process, but ultimately the rights come back to you. And then either you do a new deal with the same publisher, but try and get another advance or a better rate, or you go and shop those rights to another publisher and do a new assignment deal or a new administration deal, again, to get more money up front and or a better deal. So the current termination right was added into American copyright law in the 1970s. We then had to wait 35 years for that to actually kick in. So really, this has only become part of the business in America in the last few years. So from the early part of this decade, we started to see people reclaiming rights that they had assigned way back in the 70s and the 80s under this termination rights system. So on the song side of the business, that's become pretty routine. And after a few technicalities at the start and then there's the Duran Duran case in the UK which we've talked about before which slightly complicates things. Yeah that's to do with whether or not British songwriters who did deals with British publishers under English law also can reclaim rights in the US. Yes we have talked about that before on set list. That is very much a debate that is yet to be resolved but if we ignore the British songwriters just for a moment 
with apologies to any British songwriters listening. <laughs> but in terms of American songwriters who have signed publishing deals to American publishers under US law, who signed those deals 35 years ago, gave up all of their rights, it has become pretty routine now. Yeah, you have this one-time opportunity to get those rights back. There are a few technicalities that you need to be aware of. There is the administrative process you have to go through. But in the main, termination notices are being filed and writers are either getting their rights back or they're renegotiating with the original publishers. However, on the recording side, many of the big rights owners have resisted efforts by artists to reclaim their rights based on an argument about the nature of recording contracts and the status of the artist in copyright terms. So many of the record labels insist that record deals are work-for-hire agreements that actually just make the artist an employee of the company and the default owner of the copyright is the record company, not the artist. So there are no rights to revert back to the artist because the artist never owned any rights. Yeah, so this conversation has been going on for about 10 years now. So once the 35-year point at which this termination right that was originally added back in the 1970s first started to kick in, around about that time, this debate began, which is okay, we recognise that songwriters as authors now have a termination right, file the notices, get your songwrites back, that's great. But what about recording artists? What about recording rights? Can artists start filing termination notices against their record companies and start reclaiming recording rights? Because actually, on the recording side, it's still quite common for new talent deals to see artists, particularly when they're signing to the majors, assigning the copyrights in those recordings for life of copyright. So the record company will own the sound recording copyright for as long as the copyright lasts, which is currently 95 years in the US. Certainly that was very common back in the day. So will we see artists starting to reclaim back those hits from the late 70s and the early 80s and so on and so forth? But you're right, the record companies from the start have always pushed back on that by saying record deals are this thing called work for hire. So all of this comes down to who is the default owner of a new copyright? So when a recording is made, who by default owns that recording? And default ownership rules vary from country to country. So different copyright systems have different rules as to when a recording is made, who is the owner of that sound recording? Actually, in most countries, contracts can rewrite default ownership rules anyway, so it doesn't really matter day to day. But here it really matters. So what the record companies and certainly the majors have been saying is that while it is true under American copyright law that the artists and the producers and the people involved in creating a recording do have a claim to say they are the default owners in those recordings, but the minute they sign a record deal, those deals are what they call work for hire, which basically means, as you say, the artist in essence kind of becomes an employee of the label. And as we have over here in the UK, there is a system in copyright that says if you are the employee of an employer and you create a copyright as part of your job, then the copyright, which may otherwise go to the employee, goes to the employer. Now, in the UK, we have slightly more solid rules on what that means. What is an employee and when does that kick in? But in the US, yes, you have this issue of the labels saying, well, our record contracts are work for hire, you're our employee. So therefore, there's no doubt on this, we're the copyright owner by default. So in essence, we're the author. So the termination right belongs to the author, but we're the author. So So after 35 years, the label can claim the rights back off itself. Yeah, why would it terminate its own contract? Whereas what artists and their managers and lawyers are arguing and have been for 10 years now, this is one of these really interesting conversations where I sit down with artist lawyers 
they're always like, oh, what the label says is utter nonsense. This is clearly the artist's right. And then when you sit down with labels lawyers, they're like, oh, no, no, this is clearly correct. They're both very bullish that they have this right. Hmm. But what artists and managers and their lawyers are saying is, no, record contracts are not work for hire. Most record contracts actually say in them, this is a work for hire contract. Yeah. But there is precedent in America that just because a contract says it's work for hire doesn't mean it's work for hire. And there's various criteria that you have to fulfill under law for a contract to be defined as a work for hire contract. So what various artists and their managers and lawyers are saying is that's just a ruse on the part of the labels. These are not work for hire contracts. So therefore, actually, the artists are the default owners. They are the authors in these copyrights, in these sound recordings. So the termination right should apply. So the artists, just like songwriters, should be allowed to start filing these notices of termination. So just like songwriters are getting their song rights back, recording artists should be getting their recording rights back. But the labels are not moving on this, hence the litigation that was filed this week. Yes, so two class action lawsuits were launched in the US last week against Sony Music and Universal Music, with a number of artists accusing both majors of infringing their rights by refusing to accept termination notices that would allow them to reclaim their old recordings in the US. And one of the attorneys working on the case, Evan S. Cohen, commented on this litigation in the press saying Sony and Universal have refused to acknowledge the validity of any of the termination notices and have completely disregarded the artist's ownership rights by continuing to exploit their recordings and infringing upon our clients' copyrights. Now, there are various artists involved in these cases, so some Sony-signed artists and some Universal-signed artists. They are pretty much carbon copy lawsuits, so it's very much the same arguments being presented on both sides, and the lawsuit goes through history of termination rights and then has a big section where they argue why a record contract cannot be a work for hire contract. None of the artists involved are particularly superstar artists. One was in the band New York Dolls, which I think most people will have heard of. But it's always a way with things like this. It's rarely superstar artists who lead any litigation on a copyright technicality like this because usually when the superstar artists go in to their record companies and they say, we think you have this thing called a termination right, we're thinking of employing it, and the labels are like, we don't think you have it, but the last thing we want is a really high-profile test case with some superstar fronting it, so let's do a deal. Yeah. And so you do a backroom deal, NDA to the sky, no one's allowed to talk about it, where those artists probably don't get their rights back, but the label, I don't know, advances them some more money or gives them a better royalty rate or something like that. So it's sort of Prince did that. So it's widely believed, I'm not sure this was ever actually fully confirmed by either Warner or Prince's team, but it's generally believed that before Prince died, he did that new deal with Warner, a label that he'd spectacularly fallen out yeah. with back in the day in the 1990s. And then he said, OK, I've done a deal with Warner. And under that deal, Prince got back a bunch of his US rights. We subsequently learned that the reversion of those rights was quite complicated because <laughs> after he died, it all sort of came out. But that he got a bulk of his US rights back from Warner, the condition being that he agreed to front a reissue campaign because Warner would still have the global rights. But as we understand it, one of the reasons why Warner was willing to do that deal was because Prince's team were basically saying, well, we're going to get these rights back if we have to go to court, so let's cut a deal. And so we think that that did have a role in that Prince deal. And there may well have been a bunch of other deals that we've never heard of behind the scenes where superstar artists have managed to get a better rate or a bit of an advance on this. But it's generally the middle level artists who are still getting income from their recordings from 35 years ago, but they're not the superstars where they actually have to go to court and fight this. They are both attempting to be class actions. 
which obviously makes them a bigger deal because if they are accepted as class actions by the court and then if these artists were to win, that would kind of say that anyone who has record contracts similar to these guys from a similar time could also start reclaiming those rights. And um, that would be a lot of rights for Sony and Universal, That's a big problem for the labels if that happens. Not least because in the streaming age, that catalogue is becoming ever more valuable. If you look at how the revenue breaks down each year between new releases and catalogue, just because the way streaming works, the fact that you can now make money out of catalogue without actually having to reissue anything or have CDs in the shop, you just stick all your catalogue on the streaming services. Okay, most of that catalogue never gets listened to, but you might get a viral hit, you might get added to a playlist, and suddenly money comes in with very little effort and suddenly lose all that revenue. It would only be in the US, because this has generally been agreed that the termination right only allows artists and writers to reclaim their American rights. So the publishers, and in this case the labels, would still have rights outside of the US, which is kind of a messy way of applying this, and I don't really understand, but that is how it's been applied. But nevertheless, America is still the biggest recorded music market in the world, so you would not want to be losing all of those rights in that really key market. So it will be interesting to see how Sony and Universal respond to these lawsuits and how this moves forward, because it's kind of been a long time coming. I've been waiting for these lawsuits <laughs> for a few years, because we were all talking about it 10 years ago. And it all kind of went quiet. Then on the song side, people started reclaiming their rights. Then we had the Duran Duran case. And it's like, well, what's happening with the recordings? And so it will be interesting to see if these cases get to court, fighting that argument of, is a record contract a work for hire agreement? And can artists from 35 years ago start to grab their rights back? So we'll wait and see. But that is all we've got time for this week. We don't have time to sit and wait for Sony and Universal's responses to that. We've got to go somewhere. <laughs> Have we? Home, mainly. Um, yeah, so, well, that's the end of the show, is what I'm saying. You could rate and review the show, because that is helpful, and mainly just tell people about it. Just tell everyone, really everyone, and, uh, and make more people listen to it, because um, it's good, isn't it? We like people listening to it. You can listen on Spotify if you want. Yeah, but you can a lot of people do. Not on Spotify, if that's what you want. We're easy. No, there are lots of other places. Uh, and if, well, you're already listening to it. So you're probably listening to it where you like to listen to podcasts already. But if you fancy a change, there are links on our website to all the places where you can get it. Setlist is the music business podcast from CMU. It's presented by me, Andy Malt, and Chris Cook. Produced by Matt Peaty. It's edited by Jason Wolfe. And for more on CMU, go to completemusicupdate.com. Recorded at Unique Facilities, Setlist is an unlimited production.